Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. There has been a more or less division in the sciences of the more analytic aspects of understanding human behavior from those who study and look for answers in the neuroscience aspects of the same behaviors. Indeed, the best data appears to come from a blending of these two endeavors. Dr. Mark Solms is a neuropsychologist at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. He is also co-chair of the International Neuropsycho analysis society and he has kindly given us some of his time to discuss these concepts and developments with us dr Soames, thank you so much for being with us great pleasure to be with you let's begin with a simple question how and why do we need to mix psychoanalysis and neurobiology the simple fact of the matter is that there's this one part of nature that is to say what we call either the mind or the brain that we can know in two completely different ways If you look at the brain from the outside, you have an organ, a bodily organ with a physiology and the chemistry and genetics and whatnot. When you look inside, when you look inwards, which as I say is something that uniquely is possible only with the brain, it's only in the case of the brain that you know what it's like to be a brain, what it feels like to be a brain. We have this whole second window on that part of nature, so much so that we have two different names for it, brain and mind. And yet it's patently obvious to any half-sane person that these are two perspectives on the same thing. Therefore, it's imperative that we combine those two perspectives. It's like the old moral of the blind man and the elephant. One grabs hold of a tail, the other the flappy ear, and each of them thinks they've got an utterly different object than what they've got if they combine the information. I think that's the sort of situation we face with regard to the subjective and objective approaches to the life of the mind, and those coincide with the psychoanalytical and psychopharmacological or organic psychiatry approaches. The two seem to have gone into different directions in many ways. Some people seem to be completely convinced that it's all a matter of the biochemistry, and many other people think that it's dangerous not to include the psychoanalytic or the histories of our exposures to life experiences. You have combined this into a topic known as neuropsychoanalysis. Can you identify or explain that a little bit more? Well, I think that the two statements you just made, the two antithetical statements, I think that they're both wrong. And you know, not to overstate it, perhaps both a little dangerous. I think that if we approach the brain, if we were to approach the functions of the organ of the mind entirely biologically, entirely physiologically, entirely objectively, we're missing half of what we know about this part of nature. And that other half, the feeling half, the subjective half, surely didn't evolve for no reason. It's not just some curiosity that the brain has this capacity to register its own state primarily in feelings and then in the subjective states that are thought states that attach to those conscious feelings. It must be there for a reason. So if you leave out feelings, this absolutely remarkable and unique property of brain function, if you leave that out, the subjective being, the experience of what it feels like to be the brain in that particular state, I think you might be missing out on something fundamental about how this thing works. The brain isn't like the lung and the liver and the femur and whatnot, because the feelings change what it does. The feelings are causally efficacious. Think of the tragic example of suicide, when a patient kills themselves because they can't stand the feelings. It's not that they can't stand the serotonin levels. They can't stand the feelings. The feelings are what make them do it. The same applies the other way around. Psychoanalysts who close their minds 
to this vast explosion of knowledge and the capacity to acquire reliable, valid, precise knowledge about the organ of the mind, to ignore that information is it's just it's downright frightening that psychoanalysts of all people who are supposed to understand why one might defensively want to deny something or close one's mind to something that's scary or unknown to what's coming out of the biological approaches in psychiatry today is also really so obviously wrong. For me, that's the basis for what we're doing. We have to get over whatever it was that caused this antipathy. And I think that it's not rocket science to understand where that antipathy came from. Freud said in early 1900s, we mustn't look to the neurosciences for answers about how the mind works. That's simply because in the early 1900s, there was nothing to learn about how the mind works from the neurosciences. Freud was saying, in effect, let's stick to where there's data. You know, let's stick to where we can actually test our hypotheses. At that stage, it was psychology, psychological methods was the only way in which you could actually go about making progress. Freud didn't say, let's never have anything. It's all over Freud's writings. Freud says one day a time will come, you know, and have the opportunity to be able to check these things against biology. But psychoanalysts have turned this into a kind of a dogma. We must not look to the neuroscience. And conversely, I think that people in biological psychiatry, they look at psychoanalysis and they think, well, this is a system of beliefs, a school of wisdom. You know, this is not science. I don't think that they're entirely wrong to think that. Many people did not acquire a belief in the neurosciences because the treatments weren't there, but now they are. And when you talked about why depressed people feel so bad, it could be an abnormality in the dopamine system, but which came first, the dopamine abnormality or the external stresses that maybe have forced the brain to not produce the dopamine adequately? I, an ever-puzzling question. But thankfully, we're in an era now of epigenetics, and that kind of dichotomy also we no longer have to draw. So the more we learn about how this thing works, the organ of the mind, what Freud calls the mental apparatus, the more we learn about how this works, the more the approach that I'm advocating, and thank heavens I'm not the only one, but the more that approach seems to be self-evident and obvious and the only way for us to proceed. There seems to be some very specific themes that are arriving. And one that I found fascinating, I'd love to hear your comments about this, is, and maybe I'm being overly simplistic, but the notion that what Freud referred to as the id is now being looked at as perhaps the limbic system, and that what Freud referred to as the ego is now being looked at as the prefrontal cortex. I'd like your thoughts on that. I'd like to say two things about that. The first is that I think that the very basic dichotomy, let me just say as, a, as an aside, these words, you know, ego and id and superego and so on, they've acquired such a kind of a reified status, we no longer even remember what's really meant by them. You know, they're just they're terms for descriptive facts about the mind. And the dichotomy that Freud was referring to there is that there's one half of the mind which is biologically driven, which is instinctual, which is primitive, which is responding to our vital needs, including the reproductive needs, which is a vital need of the species. And this is compulsive and stereotyped and there from the beginning, etc. And then there's another side to the mind which constrains that on the basis of learning, on the basis of taking account of the real situation, the environmental niche that you're born into, the actual state of affairs that can't be predicted by a few basic instinctual mechanisms that have to be learned, all the nuances, all the complexities, so that one has subtle, flexible ways of responding and maximizing your chances of meeting your needs in the world. That dichotomy between those two poles absolutely 
clearly maps onto what you've just said, that there's likewise two poles to brain function. You know, there's, I would say, not just limbic system, but brain stem and limbic system, which is driven by endogenous needs and hardwired, if you will, stereotype mechanisms for how one meets those needs in the outside world. And that's the functions of the upper brainstem and limbic system are almost identical with what Freud called it. Certainly they do the same, they perform the same function. And then by the same token, the corticothalamic systems are the learning systems. They are the pole of the brain which registers the state of the outside world, builds up pattern recognition to identify this thing which I've learned which wasn't preordained that it was going to be like that, and then using these corticothalamic mechanisms as constraints on limbic and upper brainstem mechanisms, ultimately in order to maximize the chances of those more primitive systems getting their needs met in the world. So that's it. Obviously, there are details. I don't want to oversimplify the thing, but I think it can be said as broadly as that, which is basically what you said at the outset. I think that's a legitimate translation from ego in it to corticothalamic and a limbic upper brainstem. But may I, sorry, I'm, I know I'm speaking a little too much. I wanted to say one other thing about this, that when we draw these correlations, it's not just a matter of saying, oh, Freud's theory was that, and therefore the brain equivalent of it is this. The aim of translating these things into their neural equivalence is because we can test hypotheses in relation to the brain, which we can't test in relation to the fugitive stuff of subjectivity. So by being able to look at these same theoretical abstractions of Freud from a concrete anatomical and physiological point of view enables us to learn new things about them and develop a more precise, more nuanced theory of the mind. One of the things that has always intrigued me, and for which obviously I do not have a simple answer, is the whole notion of the unconscious. And this is one of Freud's great contributions. Can we say that now that we know so much more about the biology of the brain, what is commonly called the default mode network, the sort of background computer circuitry that's running all the time, is that our unconscious? Do we have any sense about that yet? I look on it this way. I think this is a moving target. I wouldn't say that we have a definitive answer. When you say, do we have any sense? Yes, we do. And I think that two things we have a sense about, the one more certainly than the other. We know from cognitive neuroscience that there are unconscious mental processes. This is absolutely no longer controversial at all. In fairness to Freud, we have to remember that when he said that, it was an oxymoron. You know, It was like, what do you mean unconscious mind? The mind means conscious. So the fact that with modern techniques it's been possible to demonstrate that just about every mental operation can be performed without consciousness attached to it is a very important confirmation of a basic psychoanalytical hypothesis. However, as you know, cognitive neuroscientists are very keen to point out that the unconscious mental processes that they've identified don't function in the same way as Freud's system unconscious. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. You asked, do we have a sense of it? Yes, we do. There are unconscious mental processes, and yet there's a disjunction between the way that the psychoanalysts see the unconscious and the way that cognitive neuroscientists see it. When you have two different theories where they can't both be right, or two different descriptions that can't both be right, we have to make progress by trying to make sense of that disparity.
When I was reading and preparing, I read some of the cases that you referred to had to do with people who had various types of brain injuries, and they confabulate. They would say something that was different than the objective truth, but you seem to imply that they were doing it, uh, they were faking rather than admitting that they weren't feeling as well or weren't as good as they would like to be in life. I find confabulation to be a very interesting process. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. And, and indirectly, I'm sorry, this is a roundabout, convoluted question. How did you get interested in this entire topic? As you said in the introduction, I'm a neuropsychologist. I've worked with neurological and neurosurgical patients since halfway through my training. And you come across these things, confabulation, anosognosia, and the like, are really interesting neuropsychiatric phenomena. When I then subsequently trained as a psychoanalyst, I couldn't help but looking at them in a new way. So a neuropsychologist like a neuropsychiatrist or a behavioral neurologist would look at confabulation formally, descriptively. It's like this, the form of this mental process is confabulatory. What the patient is saying they remember doesn't tell you with the veridical facts. These are false memories. These are confabulations. What the psychoanalyst does is looks at the content of those memories and thinks, why does the patient have this false memory rather than that? Why is it this thing that they're remembering? And where does this fit into the motivational fabric of the patient's inner world? What purpose is it serving for them to remember that rather than this? When you are trained in both fields and you sit with the confabulating patient and you listen to the confabulations, the thing that strikes you immediately is that they wish for. It's absolutely obvious. The confabulated reality in Wernicke-Korsakoff disease, in anterior communicating artery aneurysm, in colloid cysts of the third ventricle, and so on, they're all the same. The confabulations are massively reconstruing the patient's reality in a way that's more pleasant from their subjective point of view. No, I'm not in hospital. I'm in a hotel. No, I'm not in hospital. I'm at home. You know, no, it's not eight in the morning. It's visiting time. No, you're not a stranger who I don't know. You're my pal from the pub. You know, and so on. So uh, that was the impression clinically, but it's not enough. We have to move beyond the old sort of single case psychoanalytic impression that you know, I think this, therefore it is so. And what I then did was I got the confabulations, I isolated the confabulations, gave them to blind raters to say, you know, does this effectively make things more pleasant or more unpleasant? And it was massively significantly coded as more pleasant. Then I did that with 10 patients, then 50 patients, you know, and then you see, well, this is the fact about confabulation. That's important because it also points to motivational element of the brain mechanisms involved in that disorder. It's a good example of what we were talking about in general principles earlier. If you see confabulation only in terms of an objective mechanism, a broken machine, that the memory search and memory monitoring apparatus is broken, and you don't recognize that this is also a sentient being you know, who has feelings. They, these feelings render the memory search mechanism tendentiously biased so that when they can't find the memory, they find something that feels good to them. And that adds new insight into what the brain mechanism is that's at work in confabulation and indeed in normal functioning. The part of the brain that is damaged in confabulation normally constrains that kind of wishful process. And so we gradually build up a better picture of how this part of nature really works. And importantly, if I can add one last thing, we also have a new basis for treatment of those patients. Because if you understand the motivational element in the confabulatory process, then you can influence the motivational mechanism in ways that you certainly can't influence a broken search device. 
Interesting. And as you're talking, the notion came to me of people who suffer from traumas, post-traumatic stress disorder. And for a long time, there was a suggestion that if we could give someone a beta blocker right after the event, then the amount of damage, so to speak, would be mitigated considerably. But it doesn't work enough to where it's really active treatment. What seems to be a far more promising intervention early on even is reprocessing the experience, EMDR. And I'm listening to you and I'm going, how there is such a fascination, but isn't it interesting that the EMDR is gaining such credence in mental health services and it is not medication? I, I just, I had to say that just because it's a random thought that came to my mind, but it seems to be attached to what we're talking about. I think I agree. I think it's a very pertinent thought. And it's exactly this sort of approach that I, for one, am very much trying to foster. That, you know, it's not a matter of is it a drug or is it a behavioral intervention. It's what works. And then once we know what works, then it's a matter of why does it work? Because the more we understand why it works, the more we're in a position to be able to develop better treatment, both pharmacological and behavioral. I, I just don't think it should be a battle between the two approaches. If you go back to what you were saying a few minutes ago about ego and id, Freud's ego concept and id concept not mappable onto thalamocortical brain mechanisms versus brainstem and limbic mechanisms. If you look at how those two aspects of the brain work, in upper brainstem and limbic system, we're dealing with single neurotransmitter systems. We're dealing with global action systems when it comes to what Medulum calls state functions. Whereas cortex, it's about information processing. It's not about the, which neurotransmitter. Glutamate, for example, and GABA are involved in all of those uh, cognitive processes. They're not driven by chemical uh, differentiations, but rather by highly specific information coding, sort of digital coding rather than state coding. And Mesulin calls this channel functions. I don't see if that's the case, if there are these two different ways in which thalamocortical versus upper brainstem and limbic functions work then it goes without saying that the one side will be treatable more with drugs which intervene at the level of those single neurotransmitter systems and the other side will be better treated with information, that is to say, you know, behavioral interventions and that these two things relate to each other just as it does to ego. But both aspects are equally relevant. They have a dynamic relationship with each other. You intervene at one side or the other depending on, you know, where the trouble is or if the trouble is in an interaction, you can intervene at both sides. To me, this is just obvious. I'm most curious to know why you spent the time and effort to retranslate many of Freud's works. Is it that you feel that there is a subtle but real differences in the nuances that you saw versus the original translations? I had to ask because when I was in school, we had to read a fair amount of Freud and obviously in English. So what brought that to your interest? You know, it's funny. The truth is I would never have chosen to do it. I was interested that psychoanalysis was developed by a man who was originally a neuroscientist and clinical neurologist. That psychoanalysis comes out of the mind of somebody who knew so much about the brain science of his time was fascinating. And yet the English-speaking readers couldn't read those neuroscientific and neurological papers of Freud because they were in German. So, and I have German, so I, I read them and I thought this is really important. People don't understand the metapsychology in Chapter 7 of the Interpretation of Dreams, for its instinct theory, X, Y, and Z, they can't understand it properly if they don't see how these ideas developed from his earlier behavioral, neurological, and neuroscientific works. So I took it upon myself to translate those papers. While I was doing that, 
the publishers of Freud's psychological works, the standard edition, they decided they wanted to revise the psychological works. They appointed somebody who died on the job. They were then in dire straits and looked around as to who could replace him. And I was the obvious choice because I was already involved in the business of translating Freud and, and very interested in Freud. So I inherited the project sort of by mistake. To tell you the truth, in retrospect, I think I should never have done it because it took me over 10 bloody years you know, to revise the translation of those 24 volumes. It is true that there's a lot that's interesting that came out of the process. I'd like to, to mention one which is pertinent to what we've been talking about. James Petri, the original translator of Freud into English, translated the German word Trieb. He translated it as instinct. Now, a Trieb is definitely not an instinct. A Trieb is a drive. And there's a very big difference between a drive and an instinct. A drive is trying to correct a deviation from a homeostatic set point. It's a much more basic thing than an instinct, which is an inbuilt behavioral stereotype. They're quite different from each other. Some of the errors made in Strachey's translation, I think, really have muddied the waters in terms of our understanding of what Freud's concepts were. But more, from my point of view, more interestingly, they also made it more difficult to draw the links from psychoanalysis to neurobiology than might otherwise have been the case. In German, there's the word instinct for instinct. You know, Fried is just not an instinct, it's a drive. I'm going to look forward to reading some of it, and I thank you for your hard labor, regardless of how it fell into your lap. <laughs> Dr. Mark Solms is a neuropsychologist at the University of Cape Town in South Africa, and he is also co-chair of the International Neuropsychoanalysis Society. Sir, this has been very interesting and fascinating in, in the work that you're doing, and I thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your interest. Thank you very much.